0: Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, executive editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And today I'm talking to writer-director Richard Linklater about his 1993 film, Dazed and Confused, which is approaching its 30th anniversary, technically this fall, and this week is getting a 4K restoration treatment from Criterion, who are putting out a new disc with all the uh, the behind-the-scenes, deleted scenes, commentary tracks, and written essay goodies you'd expect from our friends over there. You know, considering the amount of time I've spent watching and thinking about Dazed and Confused and the way um, my appreciation for it's only grown exponentially over the years, it's also one of the few films that I've spent this much time with that I've never really been 100% able to put my finger on its greatness or even how it's necessarily working on the viewer. And this chat with Link later and hearing about what he was going for really opened a lot of doors for me in that regard. And it was also really interesting to hear him reflect on this time of his career, young director coming off a surprise hit of Slacker, making his first studio film and kind of the upstream battle that was for him. He was kind of finding his own way of making a film and butting up against the system which had its established ways. So I really hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. And if you are a fan of the film, I really would consider picking up the criterion of it. I'm really enjoying that. you know Slacker was one of those films in the early 90s you know those indie films that kind of suddenly found an audience and and, and in a surprising way and I, I i'm assuming a lot of the story of dazed and confused was d- d- kind of the doors that were opened with slacker and and it suddenly I, I think I may see Slacker now, which is a wonderful film. I don't think anybody would ever think, well, that was the calling card for, <laughs> <laughs> for Universal to be like, hey, what do you want to do, Link? Later? I know, isn't
1: that crazy? I don't know what the modern equivalent, well, there is no modern equivalent, you know? I mean, but back then, I mean, I sound like the old guy, but it's sort of like, yeah, the industry, bless it, Hollywood has always been open to talent and stuff. And even the guy from Universal who called me, he said it wasn't Slacker is why he called me. It was hearing what I wanted to do next. Like I had some teenage rock and roll movie. He even said on the phone within five minutes of talking, yeah, you know, I saw Slacker at Sundance. And I mean, I liked it, but it's not the kind of thing, you know, and I, I totally understood where he was coming from. You're the indie weirdo, but, you know, you can make a film. It's, you know what's funny? Maybe this thing, come talk to us about it. You know, or now that call doesn't come to anyone. I'm pretty sure from a studio, you get a call like, hey, you know, do you want to be considered to direct the new franchise film or whatever? So that's what's really changed. But the the leap you take from your indie, um, you know, your first films is probably not that different. I mean, I tell young filmmakers, everybody wants to make films, but make a couple films. You know, everybody wants to write screenplays. Well, have have a stack of screenplays that you've written and maybe they'll consider you a writer. You want to be a filmmaker, have a couple of films. Slacker was actually my second feature. You know, it's like, well, I feel like I'm a filmmaker, you know, <laughs> I had a friend
0: who was a uh, Mike White's assistant and he wanted to be a writer. This is, this is about 15 years ago. And it was always like, you know, writing advice. And, and and what Mike always used to tell me goes, you know what the problem is? No one writes. Everybody wants to know how to become a writer. He's just like, just write.
1: I always tell <laughs> like, people like, yeah, we all want to be something, but what do you enjoy doing? <laughs> do you really want to do this all week? And, you know, do you want to put in a hundred hours a week? Not because you have to or for money, but because you like it. Do you like writing? I tell actors that everybody wants to be a star. So I'm like, well, do you like acting, you know? Do you, do you, is it in your bloodstream? But same same with filmmaking, you know, it's like, do you want to, I always ask people, like, what would you rather do, you know, go on a vacation, go skiing, whatever, you love, hiking, camping, or would you rather sit in your room alone, black out the windows and edit, you know, 40 hours straight? If the answer is anything but that, you're not a filmmaker, you know? It's been
0: documented about some of the original intent, some of your original ideas for this film. I, I think maybe it was even um, it being an actual album length or, you know, I, there was even something about it being in a all being in a car set to a ZZ Top album. But I'm wondering, you know, I, I'm curious, what I'm really interested in here was the kind of that kernel of what the original intention was and then how that evolved. I'm wondering, you know, when you're thinking about your second film or the second film that Hollywood's going to make and, and is going to, what was that kind of kernel and, and how did it evolve?
1: Well, it sort of evolved into a film, a studio might want to make, I mean, a low budget film by a studio might want to make it started off much more I would say experimental. It was while I was in production with Slacker. I was just talking to a couple friends. And I was like, you know, I just felt this, I got this teenage movie in my heart and soul that I kind of remember from teenagers. And the metaphor for it was really simple. It was just um, three or four guys in a car driving around. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool, you know, if the whole film took place in and around the car just driving around in mid 70s, you know, listening to ZZ Top's Fandango, uh, eight track tape, (laughs) you know, so you got to have some strong, I don't know, central metaphor, central. And the, the metaphor was constant motion, but not getting anywhere the way when you just drive around a town. So it was motion, motion, music, excitement, but on the other hand, nothing happening, you know, just driving in circles, basically. So I think, yeah, that's teenage life. That's how I remember it. You know, a lot of motion, a lot of possibilities, but not much really happened. It was just all minutia that you remember. You know, so that was kind of my jumping-off place, and I, I played around with that idea for a while. It was just kind of a funny thought, and then I realized, well, no, that's more character started filling that space. It's like the car would pull over and they'd be interacting with people, you know, more interaction with ladies. I always had them flirting with carfuls of ladies, but I was like, no, we're going to pull over and have more going on, you know? So anyway, it soon it became inside the Emporium and Beer Bus and it it opened up completely in my mind.
0: It seems as if I'd be beyond getting outside of the car. I have to imagine that Part of it was also seeing maybe that same feeling, but seeing it wanting to experience it through different points of view, because I mean ultimately that's where not only do we move outside of the car, but like a, a whole wide array of high school, different types of high school kids and 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 that that what you said was beautiful, the sense of motion and not
1: going anywhere. Yep.
0: and now they're actually moving
1: once i opened the floodgates to that era in my life which i had kept pretty sealed <laughs> for a while not wanting to think about it much at all and i started kind of going back and collecting the music cuz i didn't listen to any of that that had been so that was so far away from me at that point culturally speaking and everything
0: You mean in in 93, you hadn't been listening to that music? Yeah. That was the music of your high school, but it wasn't something that was
1: in your current, however, we were listening to music in 93 CD, I guess. Nazareth and those. We can list all those wonderful, all that wonderful music that I do like. I hadn't much thought about. You know, I was kind of the 80s underground guy, um, 80s punk guy. So that was not on the in the forefront of my life but once I let it back in in came with it a ton of characters just demanding to be heard from and represented and you know the film was ultimately even more ambitious well my thing then I had to leave a lot of them outside the door unfortunately there were too many so you know pretty soon I have 165 page script that I had to narrow down but I, I was you know you got to start maximalist and i I was trying to bite off the whole the whole teenage experience and finally i just narrowed it down to what i could do in one night and one you know last day of school it all it all kind of sorted itself but it's it's good to let them all in i guess
0: it's interesting i you know you've said you've talked about this before in the fact that, that that a lot of this is taking and like a lot of filmmakers are taking from your own experience in high school and some of your own feelings and experiences there, and I'm less in, interested here in, in in the actual inspiration here, but th- what I think a lot of people and I include myself in this that respond to this is how much you capture what it feels like, you know, that sense of what it feels that <laughs> that that wanderless evening that goes nowhere and what what that time and you know my high school years from after well after the seventies, but in the sense that there was a parallel there of what that feels like. And I'm curious, you know, what, you know, obviously the music is a big part of this, but I'm wondering like what, and, and maybe you have a perspective on this. Now I'm having making a lot more films, but what, you know, as I take it apart, it's hard for me to identify exactly why I, how you are capturing that and that sense and that feeling. I mean, is it, what are some of those things that you kind of discovered of, of not only just recapturing for yourself what it felt like in in bringing those memories back?
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody's makes, you know, they get in their genre. And in my case, it was teenage movies. And I think everybody says, I'm going to make my own very honest teenage movie. And then you let in a lot of plot devices and, you know, you something has to happen. There's a, you know, here comes all the drama, you know, and I think I never let, I never opened that door. I really was obsessed with it just being the moment to moment experiential experience, <laughs> you know, the whole thing, just like what it what it feels like to just hang out. And that's sort of my, you know, like the way we process the time and what it feels like to be alive, you know, and period pieces are fun that way because you, you get the details right and then you can just exist within it. And so the plot was pretty minimal. It was just all character and um, and detail, incident, small things become big things. And I don't know, I was really obsessed with that, you know, call me a natural Chekhovian or something, but it, it's not, you know, it was small stakes, but it's people's lives. So, you know, it means a lot to you at the time it has to. So I was trying to capture that just the the feeling when I was being honest with myself, it was like, well, what was my teenage experience? It was like trying to be cool, trying to fit in, you know, driving around looking for the party, having, you know, trying to express yourself. And, you know, teenagers carve out fun wherever they can, you know, you're, you're powerless in the big picture. So you're trying to empower yourself wherever you can. And, and you you don't have any idea what, who you are, or what you're doing, you're just trying to figure it out. So there's a certain lost quality that would make a younger person a little more vulnerable to impression and you could call it corruption, too. A lot of the story, the darker edges, is like, oh, Mitch is kind of corrupted on this night. You know, he sees how asshole high school guys act, and he sort of becomes that a little bit. You hope he's a better guy than some of them. But, you know, there's, I don't know. You could see, in four, you could see four years he's going to be them. <laughs> you know, or you're, you, you have hopes for him, but maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I hope he's one of the better ones. But, you know, he's not going to grow up and be like Ben Affleck's character, but, you know, he'll probably be closer to who seems to be his buddy, Pink, you know, someone like that. A little more thoughtful, but still a high school guy. It's something I came across just to
0: share with the listeners, there's a th- you actually, at one point, we're calling it the inverse of a John Hughes film in that sense of the stakes. you know, instead of inflating these dramatic stakes of high school, kind of kind of like what you just said, I thought that was, that was a great way of phrasing it,
1: no, but i don't I don't want to say that about Hughes because he made he made very realistic, you know, is you know, I think a film that is a progenitor of days is probably over the edge. You know, the Matt Dillon's first film. Uh, Vincent Spano, and uh, just a wonderful movie about, it came out in like the late 70s, I didn't see it for a couple years later, but uh, the first half of that movie is all, what I'm talking about, just these people living in New Granada, the planned community in suburban USA, and then it gets dark. There's a cop. Then it hits all the notes. There's a cop killing. And then it has a great ending. The kids fu- the firebomb the school. It's like a scene out of Lindsay Anderson's If. It's a great teenage movie. Just great. Apparently a big influence on Nirvana's, you know, smells like teenage spirit, apparently. The music video and stuff. I've heard. But I think maybe I was thinking, you know, the first half of that movie is just hanging out and they're a little younger than my guys. There's like junior high kids and it's a little younger maybe than some, the majority of the people in days, but I was, and I wasn't thinking this consciously. I'm I'm just looking back at it. It's like my favorite half of that movie is really the first half when they're just farting around. Um, and then it gets dark, you know, there's this cop and there's a killing and you know, retribution and a lot of drama kicks in. And I was like, well, what if you, that's unrealistic. No one got killed by a cop, you know, there weren't any dramatic car wrecks. And so I was just going from my own experience and like, eh, you know, the stakes were pretty low. So I was trying to capture that low stakes, but, you know, personal emotion, you know, to it. So that that's how I'm oriented Anyway, look at <laughs> look at most of my filmography. <laughs> it kind of, yeah, yeah, it kind yeah. of fits <laughs> in that. I'm trying to represent uh, life in a slightly uh, well, for me, that's that's just where I work from. talked about that sense
0: of what it feels like to hang out and and the the kind of life in those moments. I'm curious um in that sense of to a certain degree, I imagine there's only so much of that you can script. And to a certain degree, especially dealing with a young cast, how much of it you can create on set and dynamics that work there? Am I wrong? You know, because I have to imagine some of this has to be, you could think of a scene, you could think of an experience that you had and what that felt like. But I mean, ultimately, I have to imagine that one of the magic ingredients here is. Is, is what can organically happen amongst, amongst this young cast, right?
1: Well, that was certainly my end game, but no one's going to give you money <laughs> to make a movie saying, you know, I'll get these people together and then it's going to be good. <laughs> Even though I'm thinking that <laughs> and I'm trying that, but that script better be good. <laughs> so, I mean, I have a good ear for dialogue. I have a great memory. <laughs> it wasn't easy for me to crank out 165 pages of, of material And then, you know, hone that down to a, you know, reasonable 100 page script that everyone at Universal liked not only my executives, but the heads of the studio. I that that script jumped over 35 other projects that were in development at Universal into a production slot. I was very lucky, but I want to emphasize the script. That said, on the first day of rehearsal which i'm a big rehearsal guy i i held up the script and i told the cast you know if we do this script word for word no one's going to be more disappointed than i am so that means i didn't have a good new idea that you didn't bring anything to the table from your own high school experience come on man let's talk about this let's re- so we get into the scenes and stuff you know think you get a group of people together creative it gets funnier and you know and that's how I worked on my previous film, too. It's like, here, I have these ideas, but, you know, I, I want to make an effective film, and it can always be improved. And like I said, I'm most interested in the ideas I'm going to have bouncing off them. So you get the right cast, you embolden them to bring themselves to it, and you direct, you know, just turn it over, you know, you you're choosing and picking every little thing. And yeah, you can you can really capture something really special and real and funny and lived in, but it's a discipline. It's not turn on a camera and hope. I think I've been misinterpreted for 30 years. I've been describing to people how I work and they, ah, it seems improv. And I, I've never, there's not one scene in days that I turn on the camera and didn't know what the actors were going to say. You know, it's not improvised at all. We found things in in rehearsal and those rehearsals that that rehearsal could be kind of going on before we shot that afternoon that evening or you know whatever we could that process could continue like it does on all my movies but you know the creativity never stops and you know becomes I, I can tell the scenes working when you don't have any more ideas and it's and you really like it then it's time to leave it alone and shoot it but if if you feel like there's some some gold in them their hills still, you got to just keep working it. And hopefully you have a cast that's up for that, which the day's cast certainly was, certainly was. They were just brimming with energy and ideas. And, you know, so there were entire scenes that were worked up on the day. There was a fuse, particularly with Matthew's character, I would say, because he didn't have that much in the script, but the way that was working um, I could kind of expand his part so it was it was nimble to say the least you know under a six-day work week that was very confined you know there was pressures days. I'm still a little PTSD from the production just because you know that trial by fire first film you know where people don't have the conf- you know the studio and the people involved are cautious you know they don't you know, in, in their mind, you're a first time filmmaker, even though I'm going, Hey, it's my third film. I kind of know what I'm doing. They don't want to hear that from someone who's like 31, 32 years old. You know, they still think you're the new kid. They don't necessarily trust you. You haven't earned much of their respect.
0: Was there an aspect of that because of the fact that, you know, and I, I've heard this before with with younger filmmakers was that, especially maybe with professional crew, there's a way things are done. And you have a way, a sense of how you work and a strong sense of how you work. And in in those early
1: days, was there a little bit of a a conflict in that sense? And there's a disconnect when you yourself are seen as inexperienced. And like today, if I'm making a movie and I said, hey, let's go out and do this. Everyone follows and goes, oh, good. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Creative. Oh, it's something different. (laughs) Because I'm 20, whatever film's in. Back then, I had, hey, let's do this. And it's like, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. This guy doesn't know how it's done. This guy, you know, so you're, at, you're, it's, you're really embattled against, you know, when you're, I'm bumping up against meal penalties and overtime and a tight budget. And of course, Universal didn't help when I had a 42-day schedule, which, you know, a sprawling script, a ton of locations, movement. It was like, okay, you can have 36 days. (laughs) And when they cut your schedule and your budget is down to the bone and you're just like, God, how are we going to make this day? Every day is such a hustle and you're just having to compromise little, constantly little things, but you had to draw your own lines. So, and that's an internal thing. No one knows your lines versus their, you know, what they think. So it's just hard that that first film like all i can say is you know get ready they're they're coming at you and they kind of want you to fail too the the larger industry people are like oh man we saw the dailies they're terrible they don't know what they're doing you know cuz i would film things that you know we we're so, still working on or you know i knew i'd cut certain things and but if you watch all of it and go oh i hope this isn't in the movie this guy doesn't know you know so just embattled embattled the whole way but I kind of, kind of cordoned that off from the cast and the the great experience we were having creatively with the movie. I was able to draw, put a wall up and deal with the other thing and have that not pollute the creative experience I was having as far as what the film was gonna be. There was this kind of, I would say political prove yourself angle. And, and, and that's on me, you know, it was my own lack of experience So I think you just have to, you know, every, you're a rookie who gets called up to the big leagues, you know, the other people on the team and on the bosses, they don't necessarily embrace you. You know, you got to prove you belong there. And that's what that first film was in a studio environment. And other filmmakers had spoken of this. I kind of knew what I was getting into. And I was just, you know, looking back, I'm just really glad i got that opportunity because i feel horrible now that i I just don't think that same opportunity exists for people in that way certainly not at a studio level you know you have your twenty three thousand dollar film that's an indie hit and then people go i mean are there even indie hits anymore in the same way i mean you know slacker played in theaters for six months you know that doesn't that went away a long time ago the notion of that or it's hard to even measure what it, what even that
0: means anymore to be an indie. Yeah. It's, it's something we talk about a lot because then suddenly it's also the, and we don't have to get into this, but then it's like, you can't even tell, you know, you can register noise on social media or impact that way, but it's like, you can't tell me people are streaming anything. You can't tell, you know, and what like- kind of cultural impact or people.
1: Yeah. You can't really gauge that the way you, you used to, but for the filmmaker, I would just say that, analogous position now would just be you made a film or two and now you're getting another opportunity from wherever and someone's giving you more money to make quote unquote real movie and that real movie is kind of like unions and call sheets and ad departments and overtime and you know it's like oh this is how they make real movies you know so that's what Roger Corman used to offer that to filmmakers in the 60s and 70s if you were so lucky you know that he liked something else you had done you might get that opportunity even on a minuscule budget and exploitive um, environment but you got to make like a real movie and learn how real movies are made not just the movie you made with your friends you know so I was grateful to have that opportunity and it was a, a very quick learning curve you know and you get that one that Really, let you know if you can cut it or not. (laughs) The scrutiny and the um, the pressures and all that that that'll let you know really quick if this is if you're cut out for it. So you better be tough. But you know, you just got to be ready. Even if that's you know, you could have that same problem. Just a consortium of a few people give you money that they could add pressures. You know, you're gonna have pressures, and that's that's not a bad thing. It keeps you sharp. You better you got to bring your a-game that's what i learned a long time ago you can't let up one bit you got to outwork everybody i'm glad to go back to something you said
0: a few minutes ago and i was glad that you said it you know in that because i think there is a sense of you know working with a young cast and you know them forming relationships on screen or the sense that it's like things are you know organic and improv on screen and what has always struck me as so integral to a film like this is success because this type of, you know, not having the strong narrative drive with being with one character, the structure of how you go back and forth is vital to maintaining some form of balance in in this type of thing, right? Like, I mean, I have to imagine that, and I'm sure – you and your longtime editor had to, you know, tweak that and find new ways of doing that in post. But to a certain degree, if it's not built on that foundation, a film like this, it, it really can, it won't work,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big architecture person, you know, like films are, you know, they're 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 built. They have a design. They have, and that sounds like physical, but it's really more like. Well, in literature, it'd be just like a literary flow, <laughs> you know, how long you stay in one scene and you flow to a next and what's the transitions are very important. You know, what what gets you from here to there? Is that organic? Does that make sense? What does that say about the previous scene or the next scene? Or, you know, that's just, you know, I think that's just flow. <laughs> that's just whatever talent you might have will reveal itself in this area, you, you know, and and that re- writing and and building never really ends you're in the editing room and there were i had some really lengthy scenes i had this tendency to go i guess darker or even more thoughtful i think the movie scene is thoughtful but it was i had much longer sections digressions where people were talking and you know their worries and fears and you know inner conflicts and I think there was a lot of that and it just, as I got more and more into the movie and post-production, I was like, you know, this kind of wants to be more of a party movie. We don't have time for a minute of digressive, you know, that's, I'll do that. That'll be another movie someday or that, that will have a place. But I I was kind of overreaching in my own world. So, I mean, I knew what I was doing. I, I felt I had a core idea and everything fed into it, but at some point, like a sculpture, you have to go, what does it really want to be? You know, is it, this is a little too much. Like, oh, I can feel the movie really bogged down here. I want it to be entertaining. I don't want to, you know, I'm not making a, you know, a structuralist art film. Like my first idea might've been closer to that. I was like, no, this one, I want it to be, I want it to work. I want it to be its best, most entertaining self and still the movie I wanted to make, which, you know, I got there eventually, but I had a first cut that was really long, like two hours and forty minutes or something. So it's like, well, wow, that's like a Marvel movie, Rick. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> that's like it's long. Worked. That was like an assembly assembly of everything, and it's like, oh my god, I'm crawling under my seat. Like, okay, I'm getting ready to just kill myself here. So it's like, okay, I looked at Sandra, and we were working together for the first time, and I remember saying okay, <laughs> what do most directors do at this very stage? She just put her <laughs> finger to her head like a gun and went, <laughs> and i like, I went, okay, that's because that's exactly where I am. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. So I like having little screenings in the editing room. Even if you invite in like one person to know someone else is watching it, you go, okay, no, mm-hmm. this isn't as funny. You feel them watching <laughs> it. You feel the reaction. Yeah, you, you can
0: feel it play. You yeah. got to get out
1: of your own bubble and step into the real world of, of perception, you know.
0: Last one, you know, you talked about how much music opened up in the, to kind of go back to that era and open up the, the kind of memories and open up the writing process, uh, listening to that music of the era. I, I, am wondering though, you know, it's hard to imagine this, you know, this film with that soundtrack. I'm curious about in how much of it, especially considering your original conception, how much of this was soundtrack? Obviously you're going to play the music, you know, the role of the music, but song specific. Cause it's like, we're talking about the magic of your transitions to me. And probably it's because I've seen this movie a million times. I can't imagine some of these transitions without some of those songs. And I'm wondering how in you know, a how scripted that was and intended that was, and and if it was, how hard it was to deliver. Cause I have to imagine there's some clearances and whatnot along the way. Oh, yeah.
1: No, music was I mean, I always knew it would be some kind of uh, emotive generator you know of, of the movie it would music would be maybe the most expressive element you know when you're a teen because that's that's the metaphor I, I remember just lying in bed with my headphones on listening to the music going wow it was expressing everything I couldn't you know Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon you know or whatever album it was just like oh my god this is life you know this is telling me this is I'm one in the same with this music and so so much music fit that category. So I was like, well, you know, that's what music, that's what music does, thank God, especially for young people. So it was always going to be very important. But you didn't get locked into
0: this is a particular music.
1: Oh, cue. you really can't. I mean, I had I had many of them in the script. If you get an early script, I'll I'll put in like sweet emotion was there from the very beginning walking in the to hurricane I think you know a lot of it's in the script not a lot but you know handful that I thought okay and then um, you know with all that music in my head it's just looking at your footage and going you know I'd wake up in the morning with an idea it's like oh let's go in and try Alice Cooper you know oh yeah that'll be funny that that song's perfect or you know I was I was very confident we would get there but And then clearing the songs and how much they cost, you know, that's a whole nother thing. There were some songs I couldn't get because we couldn't, either they wouldn't let us use it or it was just too expensive or, you know, again, my music budget had been cut from what I felt I needed and they cut it pretty significantly. So it was always just trying to make it work. Yeah. It's hard to imagine it. Like I said, it, it,
0: you know, (laughs) my wife and I were on a car ride uh, this weekend and, uh, you know, she. I'd mentioned that. You know, I just gotten the the disc. By the way, the four K is beautiful. And oh, that, thank you. Know, I was going to interview you, and she's like, "Is that's like one? This is one of her favorite soundtracks." And we were on Spotify, and whatever playlist she found of Dazed and Confused, she was so pissed off because she had such a memory of. That soundtrack and listening to it, and the songs weren't in the right order. Ooh. And she's like, This is all out of whack. And she was like, And it was so, I don't think she had listened to it in like 15 years, but she instantly knew this is not the right it's order. It's the wrong order. You know, and she's like, went, and She's on her phone, like
1: looking it up. It's
0: supposed to go A, B, C, D. And it
1: was and like, And the, the soundtrack flow wasn't necessarily the flow of the movie anyway. <laughs> I remember because, you know, back in the CD, you know, this was obviously the CD era. And for me, all this music had, I didn't have it on CD. You know, it it existed on vinyl somewhere in my past, if at all, if not just FM radio. So um, I remember pitching the album saying, you know, this will be kind of a greatest hits compilation of an era to Universal. And they were like, yeah, well, you know, they just had so little belief. They gave the album away. Actually, they didn't think anyone would buy it. Well, loss on their part. <laughs> Believe me, we're somewhere between double and triple platinum. Later, it, it was in fact what I put. You know, it was going to be this kind of greatest hits compilation of a bunch of music that you don't want to go back and buy all the the original albums. You know, I put out a little fun. I should make it more available. I had a list of. It was all the songs that I said of "Days and Confused," but not in "Days and Confused." You know, the Rolling Stone song that. We couldn't, you know, we didn't have that $300,000 for... No Zeppelin stones and whatnot yeah, in, this, yeah. in this in this, this budget. Some right? of cramped it, but then also some just some really rocking, fun stuff that just didn't find its way. And I either cut the scene or it just, for various reasons, you know, didn't make it. I had a Thin Lizzy song in for a while. Then I realized it had come out like two weeks after May 29th. So I couldn't use it. Stuff like that, but I could put it on this album, so it's it's kind of a fun album of songs of Dazing and Confused, but not in Dazing and Confused. So oh, I'd love to see that's that a that if fun John. Some of it, it's probably kind of better.
0: You know, I I love this film, and I think the thing that I you know, as I've spent more and more time with your films, that sense of time and that sense of um time in your life and time passing is something that's so emotional in your films, and I think people automatically associate that for very good reasons with, you know, things like boyhood or the sunrise films where you're actually watching, you know, you're actually experiencing different eras of time. And what's so so amazing about this one is is that in this sense of 24 hours, in this sense of a night, there is that, and part part of it's the difference entering high school, exiting high school, this kind of transition in life, all of those feelings that one has and associates with time, In your films is is in one evening with these kids and it's um, it's beautiful. I can't I can't. It's it's it's. You know Tarantino's right. It's a great hangout film, but there's just something also so emotional about it. Every time I watch it. Oh,
1: thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly had all those feelings. I was trying to express. I was overstuffed with feelings, mixed. You know, mixed feelings. You know, but all the beautiful little epiphanies life gives you. And then all the little (laughs) surrounded by, you know, insecurity, horror, darkness, lightness, you know, it's all it's all there. And I was just trying to express it somehow via these this wonderful cast. So yeah, you know, if you can get a percentage of what you're going for, that's probably pretty good because you're you're kind of trying to say everything, you know. Well, that's beautifully said. Thank you, Rick. Well, really nice talking to you.